One of the essential predictors of an organization's physical and psychosocial hazard and risk environment is the organization's safety culture. We'll talk with a strategist, thought leader, and analytical problem solver with extensive background in evaluating and addressing safety culture and safety management systems on this episode of the Psych Health and Safety USA podcast. From Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety USA podcast. Safety at work is more than freedom from physical injury. To be safe, you have to feel safe. Join us each week as we discuss psychologically healthy and safe work in the USA. Welcome to this week's Psych Health and Safety USA podcast. I'm your host, Dr. I. David Daniels, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Each week, we seek to increase awareness of the importance of psychological health and safety by learning from the lived experiences, research, and expertise of our guests, as well as advocating strategies to reduce harm and minimize vulnerability to psychosocial hazards in the American workplace. Division Chief of Safety Policy and Promotion at the Federal Transit Administration, Senior Human Factors Program Manager at the Federal Railroad Administration, Research, Development, and Technology Department, past chair of the U.S. DOT Interagency Human Factors Coordinating Committee. These are all titles that today's guest has held. This guy's been busy, and uh, it's an honor for me to have him. I was introduced by a mutual friend to him just recently and was absolutely enthralled by the conversation that we had, uh, the research that he's done, the background that he has, and I think we're up for another exciting conversation. And so uh, we're going to get right into it with uh, my patented question with a different name on the end. Who is Michael Copeland? Uh, thank you for that wonderful introduction. <laughs> uh, I think it's less about titles and more about what you do and how you engage with people. And I, I'm only, uh, honestly very honored to be on this program as well. And like I mentioned, this is the first podcast that I've ever done. So it's kind of exciting for me. Um, who am I? Well, I'd have to start by saying I grew up in a um, farming and ranching community in western Nebraska. And I spent the most part of my first 30 years basically doing blue collar work. You know, I started out at age 14 driving tractor and hoed beets and the fields and just did a lot of usual stuff that kids do, you know, growing up in farming communities. Um, and then my, uh, I, you know, spent a few years in college and I, uh, my first uh, real job really was uh, working in the railroad industry. I started out as a brakeman. Um, and then worked as a locomotive engineer for the next several years, uh, running coal trains and freight trains in Wyoming. Um, then I went to uh, Boston from there, uh, worked at a place called the Center for Design of Industrial Schedules, which was actually applying uh, um, the research and applications from sleep and circadian rhythms uh, from uh, Harvard Medical School. It was a, a nonprofit association. It was led by the uh, 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 Division of Sleep Medicine's uh, um, principal, uh, Dr. Charles Seisler, who is uh, one of the world's leading experts in uh, circadian rhythm sleep research. So I, I worked on that as a project manager for uh, a few years. And from there, I went to uh, started my own consulting company, uh, co-founded that with a couple of other people, uh, went back to Nebraska and uh, focused on um, shift work, sleep, and schedule design, and uh, and eventually found that I needed to continue my education. So I went back to school, finished my bachelor's degree, master's degree, and not quite a PhD, uh, almost there, but didn't didn't quite finish. Um, and then I landed a job with the uh, Federal Railroad Administration as a human factors program manager. And at the time, I was just a program manager couple of us doing human factors related work, uh, working in the equipment and operating practices division. But um, together, uh, Tom Rassler and I, who's a brilliant psychologist, uh, he and I collaborated and really helped develop a human factors program. So we um, d 
did a lot of strategic planning and eventually led to the development of a uh, human factors division, which I think now has four people in, in that division. Um, <clears throat> and from there, I went to work with the Federal Transit Administration, uh, doing safety policy and promotion and help shepherd in the um, the new regulation for requiring the industry to develop uh, safety management systems and uh, help promote that whole effort. And uh, that's a, it's a, I think it's a wonderful model for safety management systems. Um, and then I, I left the federal government after that and started my own consulting company. And, and here I am. Wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I I do find some, you know, some kinship with. So I I was more a city kid, uh, but I I can remember, um, you know, peddling newspapers and you know working in grocery stores, and, and that's what kids in the city do. That's really equivalent to what kids on the farms do. I mean, it's it's just right. one end of the chain. You know, somebody's out there, you know, uh, getting the food ready, and somebody's bagging it in a grocery store someplace. Um, Wow, there's 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 a lot to uh, a lot to dig into. Before we do, another standard question I ask folks is: when you hear psychological health and safety, what does that mean to you? Well, it's interesting. You know, I, I really didn't come across the literature on psychological health and safety until a couple of years ago, and it first caught my attention when I. Um, uh, Someone mentioned that there's a new standard, an ISO standard on psychological health and safety. So I started digging into that research and that literature and, you know, why it exists. And, and then I read Amy Edmondson's book on, um, I forget the title of it, but the basically fear, it's Fearless all, Organizations. Yes, Fearless yes. Organizations. Yeah, mm -hmm. wonderful book and, and really well-grounded research. And, and I recognize the connection between that and all of the human factors related work that I'm doing. And how much of the uh, the elements of what is being proposed in psychological safety is a, is a cognitive aspect to it, and I've always had a strong interest in in uh, cognitive psychology and human factors related stuff and how all of that fits together. Uh, but to me, psychological safety is is it's not you know so much about being nice and positivity, which I think is really important, having a positive work environment, but it's essentially being being able to speak your mind and feeling confident and courageous enough to be able to step up and and tell people what you're really thinking, but but doing so in a in a, um, in a skillful way. And it's the, the the organizational circumstances and the people in the organization that allow that to happen so that you can have constructive conversations and deal with conflict in a, in a productive way. Absolutely. And there's a, there's a tremendous amount of diversity of opinion within organizations and diversity of thought. And to the extent that you can harness that, you, you have such a collective wisdom within the organization that it, it potentially is extremely valuable. And when we were doing behavior-based safety initiatives, for example, in the, in, in the railroad industry, that was one of the things that uh, we noticed is because it, it's a very participatory process. And when you train people on how to um, provide constructive feedback and, uh, and allow those conversations to happen and people then start working together collaboratively to develop and implement these 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 programs some some of the leaders would say well where did these people come from you know like they've got some brilliant ideas and it's like they're there right you just have to take advantage of it but if, if they're not allowed to speak and they don't feel comfortable in speaking their mind then you're not going to be able to see the potential of the organizational, uh, you know, improvements that can really happen. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I and it's. Uh, I, I will have to say, uh, you're also. I think you're the first railroad conductor I've ever met to. to so, <laughs> <laughs> um, and and it's it's just it's such an interesting journey to to 
uh, to go from, again, from your beginnings into where you are now. I mean, it, share a little, and you mentioned a little bit about it. I like to dig and pull that thread a little bit further. So when you say human factors, so for folks that don't know, I mean, I've heard of human factors before, but I, I don't have a depth of background. So human factors, what, what's that mean? What's that about? Well, human factors are basically a systems approach. And, and, and that where the, the human is really part of the, the whole system and it's human uh, based in, in the sense that you're looking at all of the human elements of how that person or people interact with the system. Okay. And so there's cognitive elements. There are uh, uh, just a lot of things that, you know, understanding how humans behave and what their limitations are, like fatigue in the railroad industry is one of the single biggest uh, safety issues mm. there is. Mm. So understanding that the sleep and circadian systems and limitations of sleep and circadian systems and developing biomathematical models and being able to assess the risk of fatigue when people are on irregular schedules. And uh, so it gets into a lot of workplace design issues uh, mm. based on your understanding of the, the human system. Hmm. And, and it's also, um, there's many different elements of it, but basically hu human error is one of the most difficult challenges to address in any uh, organization. Right. And so the, the better knowledge and understanding of how you understand the, the human element of that, the more effective you can be in, in designing systems. So there's a lot of research, for example, on behavioral economics, which mm. is the whole field of looking at um, the, the cognitive biases that we have uh, that are just part of our automatic thinking and automatic behaving. Right. And we make assumptions, we see patterns where we're looking, always looking for patterns or how our mind works. And, and sometimes we see, see things that, and perceive things that uh, um, are not accurate. Right, right. Or, or, or at least not accurate to the system itself. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I'm of the belief that, uh, so, so first of all, we are all so very different and, and so uniquely made. We have these, you know, I haven't met two identical people quite yet that don't have something that's slightly different. And uh, I think, unfortunately, a lot of systems get created in this rather homogeneous way that we say, well, this is the way to do it. And we use words like better or worse or good or bad or standard or non-standard. But that's always compared to something. And, and, and instead of focusing on the outcome that we're looking for, we get really locked into there's a way to do this. And uh, and th and what that does is that that locks people who don't do it that particular way out of the process, and um, and and it's so interesting to hear you talk about human factors being you know at least my words anyway it's centering the system around the person as to, opposed to trying to center the person around the system at least that's what I I, I think I'm hearing that's a that's a, <laughs> that's one of the discussions when we talk about ergonomics it's about ergonomics works when we build. Uh, the work around the people, not the people around the work. Because if you try to do the other way, you, there's a greater likelihood of people getting injured because you're trying to fit the square peg into the round hole or the, the diagonal hole, whatever it is. Uh, humans are just different and systems should acknowledge that. They should. Right, right. And, 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 and there's the social technical systems approach, you know, when, when, you, when you basically look at, you know, where the, the human fits in that, overarching model you know you have your your uh, technical system your environment your environmental factors and and how all of those interact and you know it's that social technical system that uh, is important to keep as sort of the big picture view of um, of, of safety in particular but it, it, whether you're dealing with a high hazard work environment or even a, a technological work environment that the same um, models and and uh, you know human systems thinking is is very relevant. A absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So 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 again, you uh, you know, you're uh, if I was a kid, we'd say he was operating the choo choo train. <laughs> but uh, 
But so uh, as a, uh, a rail conductor, you end up somehow over into this conversation about safety in general. Was there was there a particular thing that happened or how did you get so interested in safety in general? Well, that's, that's a good question. And just to make a correction, I spent less time working as a conductor. I don't I only did that a few times, but I, I, I focused most of my effort on as a locomotive engineer, actually operating, operating the trains. The conductor is responsible for the trains, but the locomotive engineer is the one who is actually operating the train. Well, there you go. Clarity. <laughs> Again, tr- trust me, most of my friends wouldn't know the difference, but go ahead. <laughs> right. Go ahead. Um, well, it's interesting when I when I look back on my railroad career. Uh, at, when I first joined as a brakeman, I didn't really see it as a as a long term job because I was like, oh, "Do I really want to do this?" But the money was really good, so I joined it for the money. And um, I uh, it was working day and night on call, twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, and um, you know. I had taken one class in college on sleep and dreaming. So I knew there's a relationship between um, what was happening to me and my body and my work schedule. And uh, even after I got promoted as a locomotive engineer, I, I started digging into the research. I, I called one of my old professors and, and he gave me some guidance on where to look in the research and better understand it. And um, at the time we didn't have the computer technology, the internet wasn't really up. And uh, so I would go to the local libraries and they, they were actually able to, to research and dig into some literature and help me find research. So I always had this standing order of 20 or 30 articles on shift work and sleep and circadian rhythms. And, and I would be stuck in these sightings out on the road and so I would just sit and read. And then during my off, off hours, I would, call researchers and talk to them about the research and uh, <clears throat> and which is how I actually got the job in Boston because one of the, these researchers uh, saw what my interests were and um, I really am very thankful for him to give me that opportunity uh, and I, that's when I, I left the, the railroad industry and started getting into uh, the different side of things of, of safety. But I also had some real close calls. I had a near catastrophe one time mm. where I was operating a train. Um, and, I, and the way the system works is that when you're on call and you get back into your home terminal, it's sort of first in, uh, first out kind of a system. Or, or, and so you go, you go on, on the board. And then when your turn comes up, you go out. And it's very unpredictable in terms of when you may go out. But on average, I would have about 36 hours off between trips. Mm. And so even though I was checking the lineup and making sure that uh, I was aware of when um, when I might be going out, and I was also employing what I need to be best practices in terms of understanding and research and trying to sleep at night as much as possible, limit my sleep during the day, but to, to keep my circadian rhythms uh, grounded in nighttime work hours. Because when you flip-flop your sleep to different times of the day, you're like pulling all of these rhythms in your body back and forth and you can become desynchronized and it leads to a level of chronic fatigue and a lot of, lot of problems are related to that. So I was actually utilizing really good sleep hygiene techniques based on what I understood in the literature. And, and so when I was looking at the lineup and recognizing that I was predicting that it didn't look like I was going to get called out for another day or so. So I'd worked an all night shift and I thought, well, I'm going to minimize my sleep and not sleep during the day and then get a good night's sleep during regular nighttime hours. So I'd stayed up all day after having been up all night long. And then unpredictably, I got called to go to work. Mm. So I had already been up for 20 some hours when I got called to go to work. And, and then I worked a night shift. So I was, had been up for close to 30 hours, wow. 
about four or five o'clock in the morning, which is really when your your circadian rhythms are at their low, you're at the greatest risk of falling asleep. And I'm struggling to stay awake and I'm I'm operating a fourteen thousand ton coal train. Wow. Even though it's twenty miles an hour in a recent it was called restricted speed area where um, <clears throat> it was in Wendover Canyon in Wyoming, where I was going around these curves and you can't really see very far ahead of you. And restricted speed means that you need to be prepared to stop short of train engine obstruction, derail, or anything that may um, be in your way. Um, and I'm just kind of nodding my head and trying to stay awake. And I heard this this faint voice on the radio saying, pulling on you, 78. And I, and I knew because I used to operate the train called 78 that came out of Casper, that there's a likelihood that they may be, you know, on the track ahead of me because I was in, in dark territory. It was, it was not signalized, right. me, meaning that you're operating blind, essentially. So I, I immediately grabbed some air on the train and started the brakes to set up. And as soon as I came around that next corner, we had cabooses at the time. There's this blaring red caboose like right in front of me almost. Wow. Wow. And so I put the train into emergency and I'm still, you know, chugging along at 20 miles an hour, but I'd seen pictures of collisions where uh, even at 17 miles an hour, you know, a car jumps off and shears off the entire front half of the locomotive. So I, I, I knew that, you know, something disastrous was just about to happen because it was only about 20, 30 car lengths ahead of me. And so I, I put the train into the emergency, radio, radioed the rear end and said, we're, we're in emergency. And so there was both uh, the people on the, uh, the caboose, they jumped off and my entire crew, there were three of us on, on my side. Um, I was the last one out the door, but we all jumped. And I was never so certain in my whole life that we were going to crash into that train. And we... My train stopped about a half a car length short of the train had to be as they were pulling away. Wow. Wow. So it was a, a, like a near catastrophe for me. Wow. And the odd thing is, is no one talked about it afterwards. Really? No one talked about it. We had no close call reporting system. There, were, there was nothing that, that we, we shared. It was like a, this... Wonderful learning opportunity, if oh, there ever boy. was one, but we didn't talk about it. Oh boy! Oh oh! Uh, so if you if you peel that apart and look at the psychosocial hazard environment that you were in, there. so yeah, a, a psychosocial hazard, at least my in my research, is a psychosocial factor that's perceived or experienced by the person as a threat to them that in turn affects their behavior, and so the system that says regardless of how much sleep, we don't really care how much sleep you have. You have to come to work and you've got a schedule to be on that is not considerate of the human being. That is the psychosocial hazard that I see in the situation. Right. It's very, it's just this expectation. And then my feeling like, well, I've, I know I haven't slept in 30 hours, but I feel this, you know, I'm compelled to go and get into this huge vehicle that it, it takes a long time to stop it. <laughs> Well, and that's oh that, that's the situation is that some people are put into a, a position where they risk losing their jobs or risk losing their life, right? Wow. That's 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 not a good position to be in. Not at all. And and, all. and this was a long time ago, but at that time, um, I could have been fired if I laid off sleepy or wow. I needed rest, you know? Hi listeners, Jason here. We hope you're enjoying this latest podcast episode. Now, if you're like Joelle, Alicia and myself and enjoy learning from the best, then the Flourish DX Academy is for you. The Academy includes free e-learning courses on the ISO 45003 standard for psychological health and safety at work and associated topics such as how to conduct a psychosocial risk assessment and how to create the business case for psych health and safety. All courses feature high-quality videos, downloadable resources, multi-choice questions, and a downloadable training certificate on completion. Take your learning to the next level with all Flourish DX Academy courses included within the Flourish DX mobile app. 
select podcast episodes from the Psych Health and Safety Podcast, and sister podcasts from Canada and the USA are also included. Get started with Flourish DX for free at www.flourishdx.com forward slash get hyphen started. That's www.flourishdx.com forward slash get hyphen started. Now back to this episode. Wow. Well, it, you know, it may have been a long time ago in the railroad industry, and there's part of me that wonders if that actually is the case based on some of the things I've seen recently. But uh, uh, but I can tell you that there are, there are situations today. So I was in the fire rescue service for 32 years, and it's a very similar circumstance. Uh, and there are local governments all over this country who will complain about the overtime that they have to pay, but they have to pay it because they have set a standard of the number of people that need to be there. But the people that are there have, they're not enough of them. So they end up working extra shifts, mandatory overtime for firefighters over the last particularly year and a half, you know, as we've been kind of dealing with this, you know, this, this global biological hazard exposure that we've experienced. Uh, You have a lot of folks the organizations are short. They don't have enough people. Yeah. So they work the people that they have. So they're tired. They come to work having worked another job or worked another shift and they're exhausted. But there's this expectation. You got to get on that fire truck, get in that police car, go drive that garbage truck, fill in the blank. And if you don't, if you don't show up, then you're going to be fired. So I, I would suggest that that mentality exists across a bunch of industries right now. Sure. Uh, and there really needs to be more conversation about this is a human being. This is not a machine. If you want to replace them with a machine, that's a whole nother conversation. But this is a human being that cannot operate hour after hour after hour after right. hour without sleep. Right. And you want to peel back the human factors onion a little bit. There's some really interesting nuances there to, to talk about as well. So like in your situation with uh, emergency services, when people get called to go to work and, and they get called in the middle of a sleep, especially yeah. when you're in a deep stage four sleep, there's this, this thing what's called sleep inertia mm. where, where it, you just cannot jump out of bed, awaken yourself and within two or three minutes be expected to operate at even normal human functioning. There is, a, there is a time period anywhere from like a, you know, a few minutes to 20, 30 minutes that, that you're at, at a much lower level of functioning, mm. especially when you are awakened during that deep, deep state of sleep. Mm. So there's a, a very in, highly increased risk of having an accident going to the job when you are awakened from that state. I, I can, uh, so you're, you're, you're having me recall a story. Uh, I'd been on the job for less than a year and uh, the Lieutenant that I worked for at the time. Uh, and, and I'll say it, it was, <laughs> it was a good old uh, station number eight in Seattle up on up the top of Queen Anne Hill. So we're going to a call on the other side of the hill. And my lieutenant gets in the vehicle and he's literally sleepwalking. So he starts, as I'm driving, he's trying to tell me which way to go and kind of dozing off in the middle. And it's the first time I can recall actually ignoring what I was told to do because this guy's asleep and I can tell he's asleep. I, you know, I'm 21 years old, 22. I I felt like I was awake, but I knew what he was telling me. It was like, that's not going to get us anywhere. So I just really ignored what he said. And he dozed off to sleep and, got, and and came back to you know I, well looked like he was awake when we actually got there but you're you're just you're, you're <laughs> I'm having some flashbacks when you're mentioning this whole issue about folks being awake in the middle of the night I was in my mid 30s when I made battalion chief and I told myself I'm really tired of getting up in the middle of the night and the job was easier because I didn't have to get up in the middle of the night as often um, and you're you know starting to connect for me why I may have felt that way. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah well, there's, there's, there's another element there you just described, which is uh, what's called automatic behavior syndrome. Is it, it's been demonstrated in, in, uh, in studies that where they put people up to EEG uh, uh, and monitor their brain waves is that uh, when they're being asked to perform a task and they can fall asleep and be in stage one sleep while they're actually doing automatic behavioral tasks. Wow. So like you're, the person that you talked about was talking to you, but you could tell he was actually 
falling asleep. So he's, yes. chances are he he's literally talking while he's in stage one sleep. Sure. It's like this automatic thing. Wow. 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 Oh boy. Uh, that's a, we may have to have another conversation about, I, I, about that thing because the connection at least to me is these systems and environments that place human beings in those situations. It, it's, it's right. as if we don't consider that that is a human being. And again, they need sleep. They need rest. They need, well, sleep and rest, I think, are probably different things. Uh, they need food. They need, you know, they need emotional downtime. I've also heard that the the adrenaline dump that we get into our bodies, particularly, you know, those of us have, that have done emergency related things, you get this adrenaline dump to go out and crawl down a hallway or drag a person out of a burning car, you know, or make a rescue. And that adrenaline is in your system and it takes hours to get out of your system. And in some places you send it to another one and another and another, which is part of the contributing factor to heart disease for some folks, because this, you know, your body's not really set up to do that kind of stuff and certainly not long-term. And again, to me, the psychosocial consideration should be that we need to be looking at the human being. What is it that we're expecting this human being to do? And can they emotionally and physically do it? And if they cannot, if they cannot, what is our backup system? How do we remove them and put somebody else in their place who is prepared to do whatever that thing we're asking them to do? Yeah, and that's true. And in fact, the research on shift work shows that as well, is that uh, people who are younger, uh, in 20s and 30s, uh, they're able to tolerate changing work schedules a lot better and a lot more easily than people in their 40s and 50s wow. and, and, and later. It's, yeah. and, and it's just much more difficult to stay up all night, for example, when you're in your 40s and 50s. Yes, and, yes, or, yes. Or yeah, and then you end up with a system, and again, this happens in a lot of industries where the quote-unquote expertise is with the 40 and 50 year olds because the 20 and 30 year olds, we say they don't know anything. So we give the, we give them leadership supervision oversight from folks that are older. And it's just, a, it, again, it's just a very interesting system. And again, I, I do believe that if it's predictable, it's preventable that some of these catastrophes that happen, you know, Chernobyl and the space shuttle and all of that, that are often decisions made by "Quote unquote older, more experienced people that are actually fatigued. They're they're they're, they're emotionally they're burned out. They're tired. They there's something else going on in their life, but they they have this. I have to do this, but you're not really emotionally set up to do it right now. You're not making the kind of decision that's really good for any of us, and you do it because of the power of the position and." other people end up being hurt by it, and sometimes you do as well. Well, and it, sometimes the decisions are influenced not only by fatigue, but other factors as well. You know, maybe high-pressure work environment and sure. uh, cognitive biases that we have, uh, whatever it might be. And, and that's, that's part of the, um, you know, from a systems and human factors perspective is there, there's both elements of what can you do to help train the individual yes. to, um, you know, better deal with the, uh, psychosocial hazards that come at you on a regular basis because there are th- certain things that are under your control. Yes. Uh, yes. But also there's part of the system design and yes. how you set up the structures in, in the organization and how you uh, manage these systems and how you create a psychologically safe work environment, how you support people for making better decisions, better quality decisions, being more open-minded to information that comes in, despite the fact that the critical decisions need to be made swiftly. Um, You know, how can you tee up a good quality decision-making process, whether it's in leadership or even at the uh, supervisory or employee level? Sure, sure. So so you're you're teeing up another part of the conversation I wanted to get into. Uh, One of the things we connected on the first time we spoke was around uh, your awareness of involvement in and interest in mindfulness as a, you know, as a, uh, as a resiliency tool. I'll put it that way because so as I have more birthdays myself, I have become less interested in these kind of binary conversations about this or that It, it, you can create an exceptional system exceptional system with all of the 
best research and the greatest minds and all of that. And it still won't be perfect in every situation because I come as a different person that you didn't consider, you know, what was going on with me because I wasn't in the room. So I, I believe it's important to do both, have a great system, but also provide for people uh, tools, systems, uh, things that they can do so they can be more resilient themselves because you can't eliminate all the hazards. I mean, you just can't. It's not possible. So, so chat a little bit about, you know, that whole, some of the, the, the work and interest you have around, you know, mindfulness as a, as a resiliency tool. Well, um, it kind of is related to, you know, when I did a lot of the work at the Federal Railroad Administration, I did that job for about 20 years where we really developed and implemented pilot projects um, from a human factors perspective, whether fatigue related, but we got into close call reporting systems. And we're trying to basically shift the culture of the railroad industry to more of a proactive process as opposed to a reactive process. And, and so a lot of the work that I did in safety culture change was related to uh, what at the time was called behavior-based safety, where uh, you're basically working with people and training individuals on a peer-to-peer level how to observe and provide uh, feedback about uh, their specific behaviors on the job and how to improve safety. And it's a very effective process when it's done well, especially when you work the same system with management. And so you, you, you collect a robust set of data about the behavioral indicators that are showing certain risk factors and why people are taking those risks as opposed to a complaint driven process, a database driven process with behavioral elements. So you're getting further away from the, the uh, potential risk by focusing on on behaviors mindfulness is an element where you're actually getting even further back where you're focusing on your thoughts and your your uh your mind and training your mind to think differently than training behavior Hmm. and and um what happened to me is when i uh was um after i left the uh, the federal government I, um, I was doing a lot of yoga at the time and went through a yoga teacher training certification and I got exposed to some of the mindfulness research and I was curious about the research. So I dug into the literature as a, you know, with a research background, I wanted to find out what this was all about. And I was just a, amazed at the uh, applications that are being developed and how, um, there's this exponential uh, growth of uh, actually peer-reviewed research studies in applied settings of teaching and training mindfulness techniques to improve organizational outcomes in various ways, and which evolved literally from a, a lot of the uh, uh, healthcare arena, dealing with people who had uh, extreme difficulties in dealing with pain. And uh, a lot of the seminal work was done on what's called a mindfulness-based stress reduction or MBSR approach. Um, and it's one of the most well-cited research areas. So people recognized the how that was impacting uh, physical and emotional health and well-being with the, the patient populations, both in, in clinical settings. So they started applying it to other organizational settings. And there's some really innovative research, for example, by teaching critical care nurses when they're transitioning uh, from one high-stress work environment to another high-stress work environment like operating rooms, just to take a few moments, uh, a few minutes even, of breathing exercising and calming the mind and just breathing that they make fewer medication errors. And <clears throat> so what's, what's interesting to me is there's, there's just been sort of evolution of some of the research and how it's being applied. And the um, when people got interested in trying to understand if, how you can train the mind 
to sort of calm the mind and uh, what is actually happening is that when people practice these mindfulness techniques for say 15 minutes a day where basically you're sitting silent and observing your thoughts and focusing your attention on an object of attention like your breath when you are able to practice that for 15 minutes a day uh, say five days a week or so for a couple of months you start to see transformational changes and that's been fairly well documented in in the literature transformational changes in terms of how you deal with stress and how you um, how you listen to people you're you're opening you because what happens is that you're by focusing your attention it's like reading a book you you're except that you're reading the same word or the same sentence over and over again and every time your mind wanders you keep focusing back well your attentional capabilities grow so it's well documented that your working memory capacity increases when you're able to practice those sorts of things. You're exercising your mind just like you would exercise your body. And, and that, that is pretty well documented in the literature that has those, those kinds of effects. And so it increases your working memory capacity. It also increases your sustained attention so that you're able to hold your attention for longer periods of time than you normally would. In addition to having tremendous benefits of physical and emotional health, because as you become more aware of these negative thought patterns going on in your mind, you sort of let go of them. So you reduce your stress level. Mm. And what, what, what that means is that you're uncluttering your mind mm-hmm. on a regular basis and you have more energy. Wow. So it, it improves your attentional capabilities, reduces your stress and anxiety, and you're able to focus more on whatever the task is at hand. Right. But the problem is that these techniques that have been well-developed and well-studied uh, have been based on like an eight-week training program. Okay. Where you where you you initially ground yourself, and I've gone through this, where you ground yourself in this kind of training, and you, basically you're spending about an hour a day practicing for eight weeks, and and then in addition to that, you're spending like a long weekend where basically it's just like a, a noble silence. You're just sitting in silence, and and, and <laughs> you know you do some walking things, but but you're essentially you're training your mind in a different way than. Than we're used to doing. It sounds like an emotional boot camp almost. <laughs> well, yeah, it it, it is. Yeah. It's like a, a mindfulness boot camp. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And but what I see happening in the literature, and which isn't well documented yet, is that people are taking these little micro practices, like that 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 uh, grounding practice of just focusing on your breath for a couple of minutes, and there are a lot of little micro practices like that that are being developed and implemented in work environments that I believe can have the same kind of accumulative effect of training your brain as sitting in silence for 15 to 20 minutes a day because people just don't have time to do that in our current yes. environment. Yes. 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 But if you if you think about it like exercise where we used to believe that in order to attain the cardiovascular uh, benefits of exercise we had to practice 30 minutes at a time for three or four days a week. Yes. And, and then you'd have those benefits. Well, current research is saying, no, it's not the case. As long as you, you know, take 10, 12,000 steps a day, you sure. know, however you, however you get there, you know, it, it will have the same beneficial effects. I think the same is true. I'm, I don't have the evidence to support it yet, but I think the same is true with these little micro practices. Because there are, and this is where a lot of the studies are showing the difference between the state effects and the trait effects. Okay. So what we were talking about in a minute ago was there where the trait effects of having this mindfulness kind of a boot camp. You're changing the structure and function of your brain and, and how that operates on a regular basis without having to think about it. It becomes more automatic thinking. Sure. And automatic behavior. Sure. And so the, what studies are recently showing is that by introducing these mindfulness 
elements into the workplace, such as starting a meeting with the mindfulness moment of wow. two, or th- two or three minutes. Wow. So you ground people, you go around the room and ask them, how are you feeling? And getting them in touch with their feelings mm-hmm. and just say one word about how they're feeling or um, connecting with people in, in a different way that for that time period, that state, mm. y- you can impact the outcomes. Right. Okay? Right, right, right. And, and so whether it's in a uh, high-stress environment where you're making a critical decision, uh, maybe a, a you know big leadership decision of some sort, two million dollar decision, hundred million dollar decision for pharmaceutical trial or whatever it might be, um, you, you can create a uh, a different state of being that allows the mind to settle in and and focus more. As opposed to just jumping into so so being more mindful about that process, and it seems it's probably true in the work environment. If you can set up, uh, you know, like safety briefings, yes, and and you're engaging people with those little mindfulness techniques, you can change the outcomes for at least that specified period of time. Right. But if you do that over and over and over again in multiple ways in different uh, kinds of interactions, I think you can have similar effects that you would in, in requiring or, or getting people to practice these other kind of mindfulness techniques. Sure. Sure. Is that making sense? Oh my, oh my goodness. It, it's a masterclass. I got to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh dear. Uh, so as we, as we, um, as we start to bring the conversation to a close, look, I, I, I want to, I want to have you uh, share a little bit. There, there are likely people who are both listening and watching, who don't know a lot about what you've talked about, but have been intrigued. Uh, you've so in the conversations about, you know, circadian rhythms and sleep and uh, and mindfulness and these. So you've put a lot of, you know, put a, put a lot out there you know, that, that just can't be covered in less than an hour. So if folks wanted to, you know, get in contact with you, learn more, have future conversations with you, what would be the best way to do that? Well, they could certainly just email me uh, at uh, M Copeland, M-C-O-P-L-E-N, at truesafetyeval.com. T R U E safety S A F E T Y E V A L E V A L short for evaluation dot com. Um, there's some really interesting stuff that's going on. I'm I'm working on a conference coming up. Uh, be facilitating a um, a group discussion uh, at the Work Stress and Health Conference in, from November eighth to eleventh on mindfulness, psychological safety, emotional well being, and safety in the workplace. Wow. 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 Uh, it's going to be a plenary discussion with three best-selling authors as well as uh, some other folks who are practitioners in the field and um, to be a really interesting discussion. Absolutely. Wow. Wow. Uh, that, I, I, so I'm hopeful that, uh, again, folks who are listening in will, um, will want to continue the conversation because I, I, this is, this is mind expanding. <laughs> it, it really is just to sit and think like, oh, my goodness, oh, dear. And, and as I said, I, I think it's really important that our, you know, our conversation has covered a little bit of the environmental type things that are going on out there uh, and the importance of, you know, systems that are built around people as opposed to trying to, you know, build the person around the system. But on the other hand, this conversation about the person, you know, looking inward and, and, and looking at themselves and, and working on themselves because you, you have to do a little bit of both. As a matter of fact, right. a lot of both is even better, but no one of those, a person who is as mindful and resilient as possible will be worn down by a system that's not safe, but a safe system that doesn't have people that it, can never keep up with everything. So it's, you really have to do a little bit of both, I believe. Yeah, it's a shared responsibility. You know, we have to take ownership for what it is that we can do and, and be 
recognize it in like a high hazard environment. You don't stay up drinking until the wee hours of the morning, right? You know, and and but likewise, you know, we have to recognize as safety leaders. You know, what can we do in terms of organizational practices to help design and implement systems that that allow people to to take advantage of their best self Absolutely. and and to improve uh, organizational functioning and outcomes and. And the research is pretty clear that when you do those sorts of things, it, it definitely improves the bottom line, not just safety, but productivity and creativity. All things, all sorts of things can happen. It all, it all gets better. Well, again, thanks. Thanks very much for the, for the wonderful conversation and for sharing your expertise with me and the audience. And uh, for those of you who uh, you're, you drop in once a week and uh, get your fill of Psych Health and Safety USA. I, I certainly appreciate it. Uh, we'll uh, we'll be back again next week. You can certainly follow us on LinkedIn. We have a web page that you can get not only this episode, but all of the previous episodes. That's psychhealthandsafetyusa.com. And uh, we certainly look forward to each of you uh, reaching out to us, uh, sharing your thoughts. If you have a story that you think needs to be told or, or someone you'd like us to talk to, please do reach out and let us know uh, where this episode will uh, will premiere or debut during National Safety Month. So it's a perfect, perfect conversation to be had right in the middle of a month where folks are focused on safety. So again, thanks, uh, Michael, for your expertise and for the time you've shared with us today. Uh, and we'll look forward to uh, to following your work in the near future. And again, those of you who've been with us today, thanks very much for joining us. And we'll look forward to seeing you next time and you hearing us next time on the Psych Health and Safety USA podcast. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety USA podcast. To stay up to date with the best content on workplace mental health in America, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And join the Flourish DX community at www.flourishdx.com.